welcome, my lords, to the White City, where you will learn more about Middle-earth and discover differences and similarities between the Rings of Power show and Tolkien's books, and whether Amazon's show, episode by episode, is worth watching. I'm Philip Dutt, your host, and I'll be joined by Matt Vandevoort and Mark Schaefer. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, and Matt and Mark are here with me again. Um, Hello. Hello. We've decided to do kind of an epilogue to season one and give some finishing remarks that um, we kind of missed making um, in our episode eight. Um, so, yeah, and I guess something that I've kind of been thinking on with the previous episode just to start us off maybe um is some of the biblical themes and um kind of be talking about what um a post i saw from somebody else that i thought was an interesting take um on it um and they're referring to the to the quote from galadriel to uh, Hallbrand, when she says, "Ours was no chance meeting, not fate, nor destiny, nor other words men use to speak of the forces they lacked the conviction to name. Ours was the work of something greater." Um, and I know this person kind of goes through how they thought it was kind of interesting that um, this, I guess, that it would be kind of it would be this specified about like what they're talking about necessarily, I guess, in referring to a God essentially, um, that is working through things. Yeah. Yeah. And how that's not really, you don't see that in shows really. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a large part of it is that it's a Tolkien work and it's a Tolkien work tied more heavily to the earlier eras of Tolkien's works like in in story wise and also i guess in his life he worked on the silmarillion for his entire life and the silmarillion is much more tied into like like it starts with the creation of the world and you have eru and you have the einar and so it's like i think it makes more sense <clears throat> to deal with it here than it would than it would have in the movies cuz in the movies even in the books, like, you get some sort of mention of it, kind of vaguely. Um, Specifically in Gandalf and Frodo, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you were meant to have the ring. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So, you get you get a lot of that in The Lord of the Rings, but in, in the Silmarillion, it's, like, pretty explicitly stated that, like, yeah, there is a god, and there are his servants who kind of act like a traditional polytheistic pantheon, but they're really portrayed more as, like, angels. And so you have this overarching divine fate sort of element. And I think since, again, my sort of back-of-my-mind back theory that this is really them trying to make a Silmarillion show when they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion, it makes sense that they would evoke a lot more of that than you have in the books. Both because the elves are really more spiritual. Like, they're much more tied up into the quite literally in fact they are much more tied into the uh nature of and fabric of the world and so they would have a much higher view and a much more clear view of um fate 
and destiny than you would get in the more human focused Lord of the Rings. Because, I mean, even then you have like, in that it's much more, oh, you're going out to fulfill your destiny. So like Frodo, it's kind of decided, oh, it's your destiny to go and destroy the ring. And Aragorn, it's your destiny to go and reclaim the throne of Gondor. Um, and so on and so forth. Whereas in this show, it's much the other side of it as like, well, we don't know what our destiny is yet, but we know there's something pulling us together and tying us together. And so it is much more of the, um, a much more sort of spiritual side of it and a much more, more closely tied to Tolkien's sort of general view of the world. Because again, these are based on the stories that he'd written and worked on for his entire life. And so it was much more saturated in his personality and worldview. Yeah. I think also it's like, you see this sort of Christian theme come into sharp contrast with other like media just in general these days where the, it's like the main character overcomes destiny or difficulties, you know, through on their own hard work or perseverance, sort of like the, we are masters of our own fate, like a secular humanist idea. Or that, you know, fate is all powerful and, like, beats us down or whatever, and we're all helpless pawns of it. And so sort of this one, which is, like, you know, there is something larger out there, but it's, like, instead of a mindless fate that's trying to destroy us or nature or whatever you want to call it, it's a benevolent or good god. Um, and that, like, does stand in sharp contrast, I think, to a lot of other movies and shows that are coming out these days. So it's really refreshing to see. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but, I mean, also interesting, though, is that in another scene i think that i think queen muriel is talking and she says something about the gods um yeah so isn't it like there's kind of like a they don't necessarily make it really clear like oh we're talking about one god specifically that's a control of all things but well again um the reason she would refer to the gods plural is because um, that's a reference to the Valar and the Maiar, and they're literally, like, kind of in, like, the Valar are kind of in Numenor's backyard, just, they're not allowed to go there. Um, so, and I think that, again, I don't know if this was intentional, but if it was, it's a pretty good catch, and if it isn't, it's a happy coincidence that, um, Numenor would I I think it it makes sense for Numenor at this point to refer to the Valar as the gods rather than referring to Eru as god because um this is uh Numenor at the sort of height of their power but also the depth like the lowest point of their spiritual health and awareness and so like they don't have their they're treating the Valar sort of as kind of like how you would see the Greek pantheon portrayed as like, yes, they're all powerful, but you are more worshiping them to appease them rather than because you are being reverent of them. Um, now, Muriel might have a slightly different take on that personally, because again, she is a part of the faithful, but the way like the whole just general cultural absorption that she would have of being in Numenor would definitely, I think it's a good call for them to have the Numenorians referring to the Valar as the gods at this point, just because Hmm. they would 
they would see them as the primary powers at work in the world at that point, especially being so close to Valinor and yet forbidden to go there. Like, like if you think about it, that's a very active... Like, from Numenor's perspective, yeah, Aru's there. Uvatar's there. He's somewhere out in the cosmos doing something. Um, but the Valar are, like, right there... <laughs> And have put up a no-touchy zone around their continent that we cannot cross. And so it's a much more... uh, So it would make sense that over time, as they kind of fell away, that they would focus more on the Valar than Iluvatar. um, Until it's kind of implied at the end of... uh, In the fall of Numenor that it's not the Valar doing it, it's Iluvatar himself being like... You done messed up. <laughs> um, now sit under the world until the end of time. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's also really important to note that um, this is like sort of a larger and more interesting thing about Tolkien is that Tolkien didn't write the Lord of the Rings to be an allegory. Um, Tolkien and yeah. C.S. Lewis were really good friends, and C.S. Lewis wrote the, of course, the Narnia series. And apparently, Tolkien didn't like it. He was like, <laughs> yeah, he did. You know, Aslan, there's like got like Jesus, right? Like it's not like. Um, the themes aren't hidden. So it's really important to know that, like, Tolkien's, like, Lord of the Rings and, you know, Middle-earth is full of Christian imagery, but it's not an allegory. You know, the Valar are not exactly like angels, and they're given more of an administrative role. Yeah. Um, and while mm-hmm. Iluvatar is really, the like, is really obviously God, he's, like, omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he has all the qualities that God has, the Valar are not, like, a thing in the real world, right? And that's what makes Tolkien's world so interesting. It's, like, it has a lot of the themes of what I believe are our own world's um, themes, but also they're like changed in hmm. slightly yeah. different ways. It's so, not yeah. an it's not an allegory. It's a like he's not he's not writing it to be like, look, guys, this is how the real world is. He's writing it in part because um, he wants it to reflect the real world, not because he's trying to make a point. I mean, also again, if you think about it, he has to have Eru. Because uh, he originally envisioned it, to my knowledge, as, like, like Middle-earth is supposed to eventually become our Earth um, in his conception of it over time. Like, I think I think that Middle-earth kind of corresponds to, like, Northern Europe, where he... Because he was writing it as a mythology for England. Yeah. Um, because he was, like, you've got, like, the Germanic peoples that have all their stories... And you have, like, the Greeks and the Romans with their stories. And the only thing England has is King Arthur. And that happens after the Romans. Well, and Beowulf, but yeah. Well, yeah, but Beowulf is still, like, set in Denmark. That's fair, that's Um, fair, yeah. So, like, there's no, like, ancient English pantheon. And so he was kind of... My understanding of it is that he originally was writing these stories as the mythology of England. Because, like... um. Again, it's been several years since I've read all read up on this and stuff, but I believe that like it's not that Numenor is supposed to be uh like the Middle Earth equivalent to Atlantis. Like I think that Num like in Tolkien's original conception of it, Numenor is Atlantis. The stories of Atlantis in his mythology are written down like they are the interpretation of the fall of Numenor. I I was reading something recently about and I can't remember the name, but originally he had this idea that the Red Book of Westmarch was brought to us 
by this guy that landed on an island where the elves were still living and they told him all these stories and so like if you look at the names of the hobbits like samwise is an anglicization of a translation of the original hobbit name and so is Merry and pippin like i think if you look in the lord of the rings or somewhere he actually writes out like what their actual names are and it's something really weird because it's supposed to be in this like ancient ancient hobbit language yeah and the names we have are just the translations of them and so like again all of this is supposed to be taking place way in the distant past of our world um and, like, Numenor is Atlantis, and Eru is God, and Morgoth, I think it's kind of implied that Morgoth is Satan. But, again, it's not an allegory, because it's supposed to be a mythological interpretation of how things really were, and as a, as Tolkien was a scholar of the sorts of things where, like, you have, like, he was a scholar of, um, like, English literature and things like that, where you have, again like the Greek gods intermingling with the fairies and all these sorts of things. Like I want to say that like Oberon, who's the king of the Fae, is like the son of Julius Caesar or something. Like there's these weird connections. And so he's he's bringing that in where it's like, oh, this English pantheon, which would be the Valar, yeah, of course they're under Eru Iluvatar, who's God, because he's kind of playing on the same ideas of um, the sort of Christianization in myths where, like, like if you look at the story of Ragnarok, the ending of it, like, most Norse myths we have were written down by Christian monks who tried to Christianize them. So, like, Ragnarok, the ending of Ragnarok kind of implies that it leads into Adam and Eve. Um, this is a really weird tangent. <laughs> anyways, um, so anyways, so he was pulling on that same tradition. So I'm agreeing with you that it's not an allegory, even though like you could read these characters as allegorical to God and Satan and all these things, but they're not allegorical to them. They're kind of supposed to be them just in this particular setting. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Aslan. It, again, this is going back to Narnia, which is definitely an allegory, but like... I think there's an argument to be made that Aslan isn't an interpretation, like, an equivalent of Jesus. Like, I think Aslan is supposed to be Jesus as he manifests in Narnia. So, hmm. yeah. anyways. Yeah. That was a really long time. So, I guess going back to what else was uh, saying earlier about just Middle-earth <laughs> is an allegory. So, it's kind of hard to... It's not necessarily allegory, it's myth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um, anyways... Still, there are biblical oh, yeah, yeah, parallels yeah. To, be, to be drawn, yeah. and oh, yeah. I think, and so like it's it seems that in these few instances that came up in the Rings of Power, that they were still trying to draw on that, even if it was not meant to be. Another interesting thing about that is that the apparently the producers had like some like. I don't know if they were like Jewish or whatnot, but they had like they knew Hebrew and they had like some, you know, religious, not necessarily Christian, um, background to them. Um, that um, was kind of I know it was interesting. I think that it gave potential for them to, I guess, have 
these draw these you know lines draw these connections um but um so yeah I, I, anyways, I thought that was interesting um I don't know I don't know if they're doing that very well like Tolkien did um but they don't really have line really good lines to go off of like yeah. the Lord of the Rings Everything. did even though they're taking those yeah. lines which again like people are complaining about like oh they're just deriving stuff from the lord of the rings well it's just like well yeah but if they want a catchy line everything they have to draw on is literally like a history textbook like they don't have the dialogue <laughs> to pull from so i think if they're gonna try and be like well we want a catchy line and we want it to sound tolkieny we're gonna have to basically pull from something tolkieny and uh I'm sorry, yeah. writers and directors, but I'm good was not a particularly great line. <laughs> yeah, I think also that, like, yeah. So I think what we're saying here is that they're using lines in Lord of the Rings that aren't used in the film trilogy, yeah. but they're using the books and they're, like, incorporating them to this show, which is, I think, a pretty clever way of getting good dialogue. Yeah. Whenever they've not used that dialogue, I think the dialogue has been pretty poor, in my opinion. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I'm good. Do you want to go with, uh, Start us off with what uh, you're wanting to bring to the table, so to speak. Oh, yeah. So my idea is that we could each talk about the first season as a whole, because I think last time we were really reacting to episode the last yeah. episode. Um, so, like, thoughts of the season as a whole, like a favorite scene and a least favorite scene. If you have to get more than one, um, that's fine. But, like, um, not like a favorite, like, oh, this is my favorite arc. Like, a specific scene was more what I was, thing I was looking for. And maybe, like, just a general, like this is worth watching this isn't worth watching this is the best thing i've ever seen this is exactly like the lord of the rings films something along those lines um but yeah so i had two favorite scenes i couldn't couldn't keep down to one but um i really liked the scene with ellen dylan and muriel in uh, uh, episode eight um when they're on board the ship together and they're having this conversation about what it means to be good and what it costs um i thought that was just like that was like what was so great at Lord of the Rings is it reflects, I think, a lot of the truths of our own world that like being good costs something. Um, and Tolkien sort of was like the original of this, but um, the author of Harry Potter, whose name is J.K. Rowling, wrote you have to choose between what is easy and what is what is right and what is easy or something like that, right? Um, this is very much a Tolkien theme that shows up in a lot of his works that you know doing the right thing always costs people something. It would be easy for Merry and Pippin to return to the Shire. But they have to stay and fight Saruman and convince the Ents to join them. It would be easy for Frodo to turn back, and he doesn't. And Sam has a whole speech. Anyways, that's like a classic Tolkien theme, and that's so different than I think anything else that's coming out these days. Of you know, other shows and movies are doing um, journeys of self-discovery and something, and not about sacrificing yourself for the greater good. Um, yeah, the other favorite scene I had was Sauron whenever he says Sauron slash Halbrand when he says I was there before the first sound was ever made like literally sent chills yeah. on my back it was a great line the actor did delivered it well and it was like a reference to the music of the Einar and just like a reminder that like this person or being is like super old and just like fit so perfectly with Tolkien mythology um yeah I have a, a quick interjection yeah go for it that's just something I saw recently that's a really I think is really cool is that I found out that it wasn't until like two or three episodes in to him playing Halbrand that the actor knew that Halbrand was Sauron. They Whoa. didn't tell him until a few episodes in. 
So, like, the first couple of times we see Halbrand, he's, I mean, obviously, in-universe, he's Sauron. But the first couple episodes in, he he's just playing Halbrand. Yeah. And then, like, I think it's the episode that they are on Numenor and he's walking around. I saw this on a Reddit post where um, it was... Sadly, the thing the guy was posting about, I some people pointed out, it's not actually uh, as cool as he said it was because there's this scene where it looks like Sauron looks at the fire in the forge and it flares up, and it looks like he's firing the forge, but there's actually just a guy doing the bellows in the background. Yeah. But anyways, it's whatever episode that is, is the episode the first time the actor actually knew he was playing Sauron and not oh, just some random guy. That is pretty cool. So... It's, I want to. I kind of want to go back and watch those episodes and be like, "What did the directors make him do that he didn't know was kind of like, oh, this guy's actually Sauron." So like, when he be- betrays all his friends, yeah, yeah, the actor that's doing that at that point he doesn't know he's doing it because he's you know the supreme dark lord of Middle Earth at this point. They're, he's just doing it because he's playing this desperate, destitute guy on a raft. So, anyways. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, you're weird. fine. Actually, weird. that ties into something. I actually have gone back and watched... No, I haven't watched the whole season over again, but I've watched some of the episodes. And sort of a thing I didn't really like about the show is I think if you go back and watch it, the Halbrand twist in episode 8 is much worse if you go back and watch it. It makes a lot less sense. Really? You forget a lot of the moments earlier on that seem like they're like, oh, like this is actually like a very not very Sauron-like thing to do that Halbrand does a lot of times in the show. Um, and so if you go back and like watch it, you'll be like, uh, this feels like a little bit weirder now that we're in season eight, we know he's, or episode eight, and we know he's Sauron. Um, but my least favorite moment in the show combines two aspects of the show that I didn't like. Um, it's the moment whenever Galadriel is in with Queen Mariel and Queen Mariel says, there's a storm coming and she says, there is a storm in me. <laughs> it's just, the line was so cheesy and it. Both it's like the poor dialogue of the show. Sometimes the show has. The show's had some great lines, but I think it's struggled in some respects. I'm good. Sorry. No, yeah, <laughs> that as well. That's my least favorite line. But also, yeah. like, even if, even if Galadriel changes down the line, even this is part of her character arc, even if they're trying to find some, like, something out that's some brilliant, this is still our main character, and she's still not very likable. She's still our protagonist, and we're supposed to admire her and look up to her in some respects, even if not all. And it just, like, I don't know. I think the Gladriel has fallen flat for me in general. So, but, yeah. Question. Slight yeah. question to maybe discuss and maybe just leave on the table. Given the characterization of Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings, I don't necessarily... Maybe this isn't a question. I don't necessarily know if... Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if she's a good choice to be the main character. But I don't know if she's a character you're supposed to make a real emotional connection with. Because in The Lord of the Rings, and even to some extent in The Silmarillion, by extension of the fact that she's one of the elves of Valinor, like, she's not... You're you're not going to relate to her on a deep level because, like, elves and humans are, like, metaphysically different beings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this is, like, I think a point I made earlier on is that, like, Gladriel is like this high elf queen sorceress, right? Like she's yeah. not meant to be relatable, yeah. but and they made her the protagonist of the show. Yeah. And so it's like their fault if she's not a relatable character, if it changed her a lot to make her a relatable character. Yeah. So it's just um, like, she has this sort of ethereal, like even in the show when she's getting really worked up and stuff, she still sort of has this like 
it, it does feel, and you could say this is bad writing, or you could say this is just her being Galadriel, but, like, she kind of feels like she floats through whatever situation she's in. Not exactly unfazed, but, like, unaffected in the way a human would be affected. So, like, when she's in Numenor, she's so determined to get the Numenorians to go to Middle-earth. And that's basically all she focuses on. She doesn't really care about her surroundings. She cares about her goal. Um, and I just, I, I, I just want to note that it's like, well, it makes kind of, it kind of makes sense because again, she is very much like, especially in the Lord of the Rings, like you, the introduction to her is like she's this terrible elf sorceress and she seems like this ethereal being. And then you meet her and it's like, oh, she kind of is this ethereal being. She's just not as mean as she's made out to be. Um, and so, like, again, yeah, I, I don't know if she was a great choice to be the, the main character. And I think it's a little bit dispelled by the fact that there are so many arcs going on. That it's just like we're not spending all our time with Galadriel. Like, Elrond is pretty fun and relatable. And he's half human. Um, and yeah. the hobbits are really great. Well, yeah, there's, there's like, a lot of things that, like, I think the Gladriel portrayal, but I, I don't want to get into it. Uh, I guess what I was going to say is, like, a final, like, summing up of, like, how much I think this show is, like, worth watching. I guess I'd say, like, I am not a one bad episode. Like, if the first episode of season two is bad, I'm still going to watch the whole season through. But if, like, as a whole season two is pretty bad, I'm probably not going to watch season three. Yeah. Um. So my commitment isn't that strong to the show, even though it is pretty strong. And overall, I think it's definitely worth watching. Especially if you're a Lord of the Rings fan and like the movies, so mm-hmm. definitely. So thoughts on uh, right. what you like and so, okay, you don't like about the show. Favorite scene and least favorite scene. Oh, that's hard. Um, favorite scene. I honestly think if I had to pick one scene, like because episode eight was the best episode. Um, I really liked the scene where Sauron reveals himself. To Gladriel. And not even from like like from a lore perspective, it's kinda wonky and doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but like from a person watching a TV show perspective, like that was a pretty good scene, I thought. Um I also I'm trying to think if I had another scene outside of episode eight. Um Again, this isn't, like, because it was really epic or anything. I just think this was fun television. Is the scene where uh, Nori and her friend are in the Elder's, like, wagon trying to find the book. And her friend is distracting the Elder, but also, like, telling her, like, giving her directions in the conversation. I, I actually, like, from somebody who did theater in high school which makes me so qualified to talk about that um (laughs) like who did who has done some acting and likes to break down like the technical side of like shows and stuff i thought that was a really clever scene and i thought it was really fun to watch some classic mary and pippin hijinks yes very much so Mm -hmm. um least favorite scene um i don't know i i'm way like I tend to just kind of take things in stride as they come and usually tend to focus on the more like cinematic or the the scenes that I like. Again, as I have said several times through this, I don't know if this counts as a scene, but the delivery of the line, I'm good, was just like, like, 
That was the one moment in episode eight that just really brought me out of it and kind of reminded me that I'm watching a TV show because it was just like, man, it was so epic right up into that moment where the <laughs> delivery is just like, I'm good. And it's just like, dude, please. Like, you could have. You could have gone with, like, I choose goodness, or I choose to be better, or something like that. Like I choose I'm... the light. Yeah, like, that would have been so much better than, <laughs> I'm good. It's just, yeah. just kind of mm. cheesy. Like, no offense to the actor who delivered that line. Because, again, I don't, I don't think in that situation that he's in, there's a way you can make that line work. Like, it kind of goes back to the people saying Hayden Christensen's a bad actor in the Star Wars prequels and it's just like there is no way you can make I hate sand sound romantic like <laughs> I think it's just one of those situations where it's just like they had to pick a line and that's the one they picked and it was a bad choice um so I guess like that moment of that scene cuz other than that yeah, I that really works, actually yeah. liked that scene um, in terms of the show in general, like, should you watch it? I, again, I've been fairly positive on the show the whole time, and I, like, I can't remember if I mentioned this in episode one, but, like, I'm so tired of people hating things that come out mm. recently, like, especially in Star Wars. I'm like, goodness, people, <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans <laughs> these days. All right. But, all I'm saying is 7, 8, and 9 gave us some good reasons to hate Star Wars, but sorry, I, but, like, okay, but even that, like, it's just, sorry, like, they were fun to watch. Different fantasy universe. Anyways, but yeah, so, like, you have the Star Wars things, and people were like, oh, Book of Boba Fett was so lame, and, like, people didn't like Kenobi for some reason, which I still don't understand, because it was really cool. There were bad parts, but it was overall good. Um, so, like, going into this show, I was just kind of like, I, I kind of had decided beforehand that I was going to like it. Um, because of that reason, because I was tired of like going into things and being, having people nitpick them. So I would definitely say it's worth watching. Like it's definitely, if you're the, if you're the kind of person who's listening to a podcast about Tolkien works, um, you, sh you would, you should watch this show and you should try to go into it with a, like, well, it's not going to be completely accurate to his world but it'll be a fun fantasy show and you can know going into it like now that we're at the end of it of the first season like oh they actually i do think that the people who made this show cared about the source material and were doing the best they could with what they had um maybe not the best they could but they were doing what they could with what yeah. they had and i think that for that much for that reason it's worth watching i think also if we want the Tolkien estate to be like, okay, you can actually make a Silmarillion show now. Like, we should support these sorts of things. Um, because, like, I want to see Torin on the big screen. But, uh, um, <laughs> Children but, of Fury, man. Children of Fury. Yeah, I know. Um, but, like, going beyond all that, like, is it a fun, like, setting aside the Tolkien aspects of it, is it a fun show to watch? Is it a good show to watch? I think it is. With the Tolkien aspects, yeah, it's not going to be, it's not probably not what Tolkien had in mind for this part of the second age but it's not so horrendously bad like a lot of people have been saying it is that it doesn't fit in with the universe especially if you are coming at it as somebody who has mostly watched the movies 
like this fits in <laughs> fits in real well with the Hobbit movies. No, um, it, <laughs> it fits in with the movies. Um, yeah, the it, bad dialogue fits right in there with you know. Why does it hurt so much? <laughs> because it was real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I I would definitely say this is better Tolkien media than the Hobbit movies. Um, first Hobbit movie was. Decent. First time of movie was decent. Like, was By decent. the third time, they have video game physics, although they had that in the first movie, too. Um, but anyways, sorry. Yeah. Very ADHD tangents. But, like, yeah. Overall, I would say, yeah, you should definitely watch it. If I'm going to give it, like, a grade, um, I don't know if you gave it a grade, but... I would go the B if I was giving it a grade. Yeah, I, I would say, like, a B. I'd even go... I'd even be willing to go as high as a B plus, Just because, like, again, it's not perfect. Um, but honestly, I don't think you could make an A Tolkien show set here. Because in my mind, a Tolkien show that was like an A would be just as close to the books as possible, and they just don't have the material to make a full-on show for this. Yeah. My standard for A was the Lord of the Rings movies, so, yeah. so obviously not. And I guess I should also say that like I came in with like Tolkien's works mean a lot to me. I'm coming in very critical yeah. of anyone trying to adapt them. So you came in with like a more excited to like watch and like listen to Akin with a very more critical attitude yeah, so it probably reflects I, our experience as well. I know I'm pretty sure I said in the first episode that like I came into this with basically no expectations because having said all this you guys should definitely watch it I also will say that like if somebody is getting into the Tolkien world and like wants to do all the essential Tolkien stuff it's like read the books and then watch the Peter Jackson movies maybe like, this is not essential reading or essential watching to be a Tolkien fan. And I came into it with a very, like, nonchalant attitude to it, towards it. Because I think that's true of most Tolkien adaptations. Because, like, like with Star Wars, you have, um, like, it started as a movie franchise. And so they're still making it. And with Marvel, they're still making it. And then you have things like Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, where it's like these things were, they were books first, but my impression of it as somebody who was really getting to be like a functioning, thinking person just after the uh, Harry Potter movies were coming out and just before Game of Thrones, it's like these things really took on their the life of their own once the films and the TV show made them popular. And so for things like Harry Potter, I think it's a lot easier to like, oh, the the movies are more sacred than uh and they're still adding like sacred texts to these these works. Whereas with The Lord of the Rings, like anything that comes after, you know, he finished uh they they just recently a few years ago finished published like The Fall of Gondolin, I think. And it's just like you have the three books of The Lord of the Rings you have The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, and then The Children of Huron, Baron and Luthien, and The Fall of Gondolin. But the last three there are Christopher Tolkien fleshed them out yeah, from his well, writings. That's true. So. That's true. Um, so really, I guess really all you really need is the three Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and The Silmarillion. And it's like a, just really quick to like, this is a really important point, I think, that like, Tolkien is dead, so he can't ruin the universe. Like, yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah, would say yeah, like, yeah. oh, the Harry Potters are like being ruined by certain adaptations or the Star Wars yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. yeah. But like ultimately, like the Tolkien universe, the books will never change. Yeah, right? that's and what that's I'm, like the source material will never. That's change, what I'm so, getting yeah. at. Is that like 
don't be upset if this show doesn't live up to your expectations because it's not really the Lord of the Rings. It's like a lot of people have been using this phrase kind of disparaging the show in that like, oh, I just see it as fan fiction. And it's just like, why are you upset about it then? If it's just fan fiction, which is kind of the attitude I took towards it, is like, it's just these people's interpretation and they wanted to add to the story. It's the same way I feel about the Shadow of Mordor games. I haven't played them. I want to play them. I've heard that they're actually really fun, but I don't take anything that those games say as part of actual Tolkien canon. Um, so, yeah, like, it It kind of... I don't understand why people are upset about it, because it's just, like, it's not that serious. And yeah. so that's the attitude I was taking towards it, is that, like, even if this is the worst show I've ever seen, it will do nothing to besmirch the Lord of the Rings for me. So. Yeah, that's fair. I will say that... Like, if they had used a lot more of, like, lesser characters and stuff, then I would, like, care a lot less. The hard part is, like, whenever perhaps you see Galadriel or Elrond or maybe even Gandalf who are being portrayed on the big screen, and you're like, wow, these are characters who are, like, so important to Tolkien's works and legacy, and they're being, like, um, perhaps twisted in ways that you don't think are consistent with his work. I think maybe he changes things more. It becomes a little bit more than fan fiction in that case, I guess Okay, I would say. yeah, yeah. I, I can um, see how people would say that. Anyways. Like, theoretically, like, if they just, like, made this awful adaptation of, like, Gandalf or something, and you saw it, like, that would probably make you pretty upset if he was, like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Gandalf conquering the hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf who is, like, I don't know, I don't know, committing crimes or something. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, know. at that point... I think I would completely divorce it from the Lord of the Rings. I kind of want to see it out of like a cruel, twisted desire to be like, yeah. how far can they take this? Yeah, let's like write like an anti Lord of the Rings series, you know, where like Sauron is like this like so, good guy who's like Sauron to... carries the hobbits off of Mount Doom as it's exploding. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have my ring anymore, but I can carry you. <laughs> but I think it's Phil's turn to talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, so so going into the to the show, there I guess there were I know I was I was gauging it from like two ends, two things I guess. One was whether or not it's woke, and then another one was you know whether or not anything risque would come out in it. And once I knew for sure that, like, there wasn't really anything that was going to be risque, and I was just kind of like, okay, well, then maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on this. Um, so, in that way, there are things that, like, I overlooked or whatever that a lot of people other other, other people would have had um, problems with, but um, I mean, to give, like, a scene, like, the very first thing that stood out to me was when, like, Galadriel was acting in the first episode and I just felt maybe what you guys are saying like she's not like relatable I mean, not supposed to be relatable necessarily and yeah. maybe that was the tough part it's like alright wait a second is that just like her being so like stoic kind of like this is the way things are happening that I'm just like alright um uh I don't really know that I I don't know I just couldn't like it was like the just like the way that she was acting wasn't this wasn't very enjoyable to watch um and anyway so i guess i gave my worst scene first um that's fine yeah. but 
the best scene. Um, man, I think that. With Muriel and Elendil on the ship, I think that was a pretty good scene. Um, but honestly, it's like so. Since I watched it, it's kind of fuzzy right now. Yeah. But um, yeah, I liked a lot. I mean, I liked a lot of scenes with Elendil. Like, I honestly like his character. Like, I I've like he was like he was my favorite character. The of whole all thing. the characters that like. Wow, this seems exactly like Tolkien's portrayal. Yeah. I think Elendil is probably the best. He carried himself very gracefully and like nobly mm-hmm. in a way where like, like I think the best kind of parts of Elendil's character were the parts where like you can tell he's not satisfied with how Numenor is, but he is also still very like proud, but not in like a bad way. Like he's very he carries himself very nobly and regally because he's still like despite all the flaws with Numenor he still is very much like Numenorian and identifies that way mm-hmm. um, I will I will also say like I think that I didn't say it was my favorite scene again because like while I do like analyzing stuff I do I can be kind of shallow and just like I like the big action scene <laughs> but um I do think probably the most I think um, I want to say Nerd of the Rings described it this way as like the most Tolkien scene in the entire show was the scene with Elendil and Muriel on the ship right before they like in the last episode where they they kind of have that moment with each other and I did think that was a very powerful and a really good moment as well still not my favorite because they didn't have swords but you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I would give it I would give it a B plus just because I've seen like movies I would really call B and acting and you know screenwriting that I think would I would really call B and this wasn't that. Yeah. This is better. So yeah. Because we failed, we should have used the Fenorian runes to create it. <laughs> Fenorian <laughs> runes. Oh no, man. Um any other uh I have Thoughts one comment here? about the Lord of the Rings and fantasy as a whole that's just like, it, it has nothing to do with the show, and we can save it for later, and it's a nitpick, but uh, I, I will just throw that out there, that, that I do have something I want to rant about, right. but we can okay. do that later. Um, I was going to say, I, I don't know if we talked about it a lot, but in the actual story, the elven rings are created last of the rings, yes. and in this show they're created first, and I... It was very interesting because, like, I don't see how this reflects, like, a deeper theme of Tolkien's work. So it's not, like, what I'm really upset about. But it is, like, a pretty major change. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on uh, it. Yeah. So the only, like, the thought that I, was I did hear about that, or, you know, think about that, too. Um, one thing I heard is that potentially, which would be, like, really convoluted, but, like, potentially there was a, there were, like, more, like, to the story that was going on, and somehow, like, yeah. Hallbrand's also, like, making the other rings yeah. at the same time. They didn't show that in the second like season. Thing. They're going to kind of show you, like, the way he's working that out. And Keller Brimbor, in even that last episode, we had talked about some before, like, he didn't even seem to really, like, pick up, like, oh, wait, 
Holbrand's the yeah at least bad. He doesn't he doesn't really cut. So like and they have to I feel like they have to do that still if they're gonna like continue the story. Well, yeah, and just like a real movie, I should say the original story has Sauron and the elves of Celebrimbor working together to create the sixteen, the seven dwarven rings, the nine. Uh, plus rings of, rings of men and pun- plus a bunch of lesser rings and then Sauron goes to make the one ring and while he's doing in that the elves who have already been practicing on these other rings the rings of dwarves and men make their own rings uh, the three elven rings of power they do predate mm-hmm. so, the one ring because it says that they yeah. know as soon as he's made it and put it on they're like oh crap <laughs> and take um, the rings off but yeah, so it's like very interesting that like first of all Sauron has a much bigger hand in creating the elven rings in this story than he does in the other ones and also that the Elven Rings are sort of seen as the pinnacle of Elven craft, or is this they're sort of the first try? And it will be a pretty big change if they, to, at least in my mind, if Sauron does end up making the rings for men and dwarves, because it made it seem in the books like Sauron was like twisting the wrong one, the rings to his own use by using the One Ring rather than them being like his own creation or, or ideas. Um, so I have a theory that I think I brought up last week um, that. Again, looking at this from a like story writing, a like person writing a TV show standpoint, I think it makes sense to show us the most spectacular rings as like the season finale thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think they just kind of did it for convenience, which I don't really mind. Um, I mean, I would have preferred the Elven Rings be last. Like, I think they could have gotten the same appeal by having them create the first of the Rings of Power. And then, like, you could culminate season two with them creating the Elven Rings, and then begin season three with the creation of the One Ring. But the way they're doing it, I kind of think that while Galadriel and Elrond are off doing something, whatever it is that they end up doing in season two, um, that Halbrand or Sauron will come back and refer to himself as Anatar and be disguised as an elf this time. Hmm. and use the name Anatar to kind of hint to Celebrimbor because he like very deliberately was like it's a gift <laughs> um, and so use the name Anatar to kind of signal to Celebrimbor like hey look it's me Halbrand I'm going to help you make more rings um, and I if they show Sauron and the elves making the rings I think that's how they'll do it and then like at some point Celebrimbor, because, like, eventually Celebrim, like, Sauron kills Celebrimbor in war. Like, he sacks mm-hmm. Aregion. So, um, I, I think if they're gonna go with, like, part of me thinks they're just not gonna show the creation of the other rings. They're just gonna be like, yeah, they made them while trying to figure out these three. Um, which would be a, a, it'd be disappointing. And I don't know, maybe they can't do that. I feel like, like they would, I really feel like that I'm talking about the like the show, the show is, is covered. That's true. Power. That's very true. <laughs> um, even people, I don't know. It's just gonna have so much more they could put in there. It'll yeah. be a montage in the first episode <laughs> of season two. Well, the criticism I had someone here, I thought it was like pretty bad. I was like they should have spread out them making the rings more. They should have started either earlier in the season or something. But like just giving us like this, like it was a half an episode, maybe even less of them making yeah. the elven rings. Right. Um, I do think and. Like the show is called Rings of Power. Like let's spend more time on like the besides one ring. It's like the three most important rings, right? And yeah. sort of it didn't spend a lot of time. I do think it'll be. I do see think something that would be neat for them to do is if they do show the crafting of the other rings. Like I could totally see them 
doing like a flashback scene in the beginning of season two hmm. where they're it's them figuring out the uh the other rings i do think they should show them creating some lesser rings that are unadorned with a gen gem simple because like that's the whole reason that nobody realizes no, bilbo's no. ring is the one ring is because like sauron kind of geniusly made it to look like the you know well and yeah yes there are other magical rings out there but also that like middle earth is full of magical items that do magical yeah, things yeah. so yeah anyways so i i think that um i think we will see them i i kind of like the idea of him like if they're gonna do it this way like have the elven rings be first i kind of do like the idea of him coming back and helping Celebrimbor because like you could set it up that like Celebrimbor like this is the grandson of Feanor. The Feanorians are nothing if they are not arrogant. Um, and so have Celebrimbor to be like, man, these things are pretty cool. I want to make more, but I don't have Mithril. He doesn't have Mithril right now. They used all the Mithril mm-hmm. to make the three elven rings. So have Sauron come back and be like, hey, I just happened to figure out how to... Because like the one ring is just gold. Um... Or at least it's implied to be just gold. And so, like, it'd be a really neat thing to have... And the myth... Again, going back, the mithril is there as the preserving aspect of the rings. I think in the books it's different that, like, only one of the rings is... One of the elements yeah. is mithril. only Nenya, I think. But, um, like, the idea... It kind of... If they're going to go with mithril preserves elves, it kind of does make sense. Because, like, the rings preserve the elves. And so that's... It's not necessarily that the mithril is what gives them their magical power. It's that the mithril gives these three rings the ability to preserve, and then Sauron comes back and is just like, Celebrimbor is trying to figure out how to make magic rings without mithril, and he comes back and like, hey, let me help you with that, and then they together craft the other rings, and then Sauron goes off and is just like, hey, hey, hey I'm going to make my own ring. And then the Lord of the Rings happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spoiler. Spoiler alert. This is part of the Lord of the Rings, guys. Um, <laughs> spoiler so, alert. Sauron something loses. I thought was kind of interesting is... Um, so I thought of is how, like... Because, you know, um, Sauron has, you know, a little bit of a hand in the Elven Rings, right? Not less so than the other ones, but, yeah. like... He taught them the he taught process them Right, the but, like, yeah, so, like, how much power will the show show, like... Sauron's like power over the Elven Rings, and how much does that show in the books? In the books, it's very heavily implied that like it, it's kind of treated like the One Ring. It has some sway, some undefined, vague sway over the Elven Rings, but it's mostly the fact that when the One Ring die lose is destroyed, the Three Rings lose their power, and so it's not like because they don't they obviously don't work in the same way that the one ring connects to the other rings in that uh like galadriel and elrond and serdan and then uh gandalf do not become ring wraiths um they because like the influence of the one ring to control the three rings is cut off because sauron did not have a hand which makes sense because like i'm guessing that um the the mechanics of it is that like Sauron put his essence into the One Ring, and he personally put his essence into these other rings to give them a direct control over it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't; he wasn't able to do that with the Elven Rings, 
and then but he was still able to like somehow tie up through his designs like the designs had a flaw in them or something that ties them all together so as soon as the one ring is destroyed the elven rings lose their power but it's not like the elven rings are tempting or corrupting their wielders because like you look at the two ring bearers that we see actually all three of the ring bearers that we see of the elven rings are like the three most good people in the world um or three of the most good people in the world yeah and yeah so, i mean one of them even said in this show maybe i'm good <laughs> <laughs> sorry no yeah i think it's interesting it's an interesting question tolkien's but it like ties in with tolkien's work, like ideas of magic like magic yeah. isn't like the way we think of magic is in the Harry Potter movies where it's like, oh, it's all your all control or none. And sort of yeah. there's this mysterious, like, the one ring is tied up with the three elven rings. Is this but, your um, ring? Sorry. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, it's made very explicit that the nine rings, that if whoever holds the one ring can literally command them. If yeah. Saruman gets the one ring, he says, I would, like, be able to command you and you would call me lord. Um, so Which it does like, make the prospect of Sam getting the ring... And commanding the Nazgul to guard <laughs> very funny. <laughs> oh no, absolutely, yeah. Um, but the seven rings of the dwarves are... Sauron also seems to have a lot of control over them, and he gives them the dwarves, but he doesn't control them in the same way that he controls the men. And though he can bring misfortune to them, you know, they all get eaten or something, they don't become wraiths or become his servants in the same way that the rings of men do. So it's sort of an interesting question of, like, how much is it because Sauron didn't help make the three rings of the elves? How much is it they're just elves? Um... But one thing that's stated explicitly is after Sauron puts on the One Ring, that they they hide their rings because they're afraid yeah. that Sauron is Sauron will look for them because if he gains those in addition to his own ring, he becomes much stronger. Yeah. But I, any direct control or power he has yeah. over them is I, not stated explicitly. I have a comment about this about yeah, the that? way the different races are affected. I think that in the in the example of the dwarves not becoming ring wraiths, I think that's because they're dwarves. Oh yeah, yeah um, for sure. Because they're stubborn and they're less likely to be corrupted. Um, but also, if you look on the metaphysical level of Tolkien's world, they are like a substantially different creature than elves or men. Mm -hmm. um, because they were created by Aule, not by Iluvatar. And so they sort of have that um, stubbornness. And you could argue that, and this is again, this is all fan conjecture by me. But you could say that, like, Aule makes them resistant to corruption because Aule has a really bad track record with his servants <laughs> being corrupted to evil. Like, Sauron, the Balrogs are all kind of implied to be his. Sauruman, like, Aule, poor Aule. Um, over two in terms of the Maiar, so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so you have that. But in the Elven case, I think it is the rings that prevent... Or a combination of the rings and the elves. Because, again, even though we talked about, like, elves are different on a metaphysical level than men, they are also both um, children of Iluvatar. They're both, like... It should be noted that the dwarves, even though they are created by yeah, Ali, are given the status of children of Iluvatar. They as are well. He's later. the one who gives them life. Yes, um, that's so, true. Yeah. But they're not, like, counted in the, the two... Mm -hmm. Until later, they're not counted as the two kin... Of Iluvatar, the yeah, two yeah. children of Iluvatar. So you have, um, and like if you read the Silmarillion, elves are very corruptible. Oh no, <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. And, and but never, 
Never in the way that never, men are. Never in the way that men are. But like, I, I think it's a combination of the fact that these rings do not have Sauron's essence in them. No, And yeah. the sort of spiritual... Um, spiritual power of, power of the elves. I was going to make a quick comparison that, like, the elves are manipulated maybe the way a charging bull is manipulated and that you can point it in a direction, but... Sauron and Morgoth can make men almost like horses where they, you know, they control yeah, it completely. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you don't really control a charging bull. Maybe you can get it to point in the right direction, yeah. but it's a different mm. level of control. You so can also breed it into yeah. orcs. <laughs> that, that too. And you can control orcs. So where are the orcs rings, Sauron? <laughs> Justice for the orcs. <laughs> Justice for the orcs. Right. So, there's no, so there's nothing exactly about like the one ring that's going to keep the elven rings from like like if, for instance like if is like the one ring more powerful than the elven oh, rings yeah. oh yeah like, way more powerful and that's like the danger is that the elven rings are just a uh, holding force but that eventually sauron will defeat them but the rings do like are used in effects you know like to guard the realms of yeah, you know yeah, yeah. that's Lothlorien why and rivendell, rivendell so. and Lothlorien. that's why they still exist which are, i guess that the gray havens were just that cool <laughs> Well, the Great Havens are also, like, so far in the west that, like, Sauron never really gets near them. That's true. Yeah, but, I mean, like, part of it isn't... Because even after Sauron's gone, the glory of the elves fades because the rings fade. But Cerdan just gives up his ring to Gandalf. So I guess Cerdan... I mean, I would believe it. Cerdan is a pretty big Chad, but, you know. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But, um, um, so they're able to be used without corrupting the users is sort of... Yeah, yeah. That was your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you want to speculate about season... Two. Do I mean, we want? did a little bit because, like, I we had the the rings. Sounds good. I I was going to. I mean, my question on here, if I'm like, uh, was the difference between Adar and Sauron? Because I think there'll be almost for sure a showdown between them in season two. If if it's not, it'll be like later season. But yeah. Um. Do you guys have like any thoughts on the differences about I, them? I think. And what the show is trying to tell us through that, maybe. I think that we have an interesting comparison here. I think that Sauron is sort of a representation of a an evil creature that seems fair. And Adar, while he's not really a good creature, I think he's a more good creature that seems more terse. And I have read things about Tolkien's frustration... Like, not frustration. He wrestled with, can orcs be redeemed? Like, mm-hmm. are orcs inherently evil, or are they not? And personally my interpretation of it is that the orcs are not inherently evil they're just often twisted to evil means again i think i brought up the fact that there's that line describing the last alliance of men and elves that says the only kin that was undivided (laughs) was the elves which means that there must have been at least a few orcs fighting against sauron to be fair orcs fighting against Sauron doesn't mean they're fighting for good that's true that's true but Technically speaking, they were fighting against Sauron, which again I think would be an interesting direction to take a- Adar and his little band of guys to have them be like show up right before the last battle and be like, "We hate this guy too." <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think I think it's a in a very very broad sense, you can compare Adar as the um the foul seeming thing that is actually. Again, very heavy air quotes. Good. Um, whereas Sauron is the fair-seeming thing that is actually just thoroughly corrupted. Um, 
again, another comparison you could make is that Adar was corrupted from an external force. He was an elf that was corrupted by Morgoth into the the foul creature he is now. Sauron, like, originally he may have been corrupt, like, kind of enticed by Morgoth, but, like, everything he did, his whole evilness was all on him. Mm-hmm. Like, Sauron chose to become evil, and he chose again in the books. He chooses... Like, there's a brief moment after the fall of Morgoth. Like, in the in the show, it describes, like, it's like a, a fist was released from my neck. And I think he's being honest there. Um, but there's that brief moment. There's a brief moment where he could truly be redeemed. And then he just decides to completely reject it. So, Sauron, again, and this is why, again, I, I don't have an issue with all the people saying, like, like you were saying even earlier about, like, oh, Halbrand does this thing that seems un-Sauron-like. It's just like, Sauron's whole thing is that he doesn't seem Sauron-like until the last possible moment. Yeah, I, I just wanted to specify, it wasn't that he did, like, oh, he did, like, things that might seem as good. It was that he did things that seemed like he was more of a man and not secretly a Maiar. Oh, okay. Um, um, yeah. But again, like, <laughs> it's Sauron. Maybe that was his 200 IQ plan the whole time. Um... <laughs> We still have to ask what was he doing on a raft in the middle of nowhere, but um, they'll show you that in the next season. Sounds right? good, hopefully. <laughs> but um, I was gonna. So there's this really interesting thing if you watch. I believe season three is the Adar, and that's like where he shows up at the end. Episode three. Uh, I think episode three. Yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. Um, but if you watch like episode four, so like at the very end of episode three, as he's coming in, like all the orcs are bowing down to him. But then if you watch episode four, they replay that scene, but they're not bowing down. They're just like nodding to him. It's very weird to me. Um, but there's like this distinct between the two of them, like Adar literally calls the orcs his like brothers or his children. His children yeah. Whereas Sauron will oh like and the Lord of the Rings will considers them slaves, they're like worthless. And I think also Adar uses some phrases like brotherhood as well, um, for the orcs, like the brotherhood, um and Sauron, like the hallmark of his reign and like evil itself in Tolkien's literature is this inner strife and conflict right like yeah. the orcs are always killing each other always fighting among each other and it seems like none of the orcs under adar have been doing that and yeah. that doesn't seem like his plan the other thing i was going to mention is that adar seems um if we assume he's being honest that he really just wants a place for the orcs to live yeah. and so on was always about world domination so there's this really interesting mm-hmm. parallel between their ideas and definitely adar is like if not a good character then a much better one or a much more relatable one than sauron is He's a very um, he, he's a neutral character on the D and D line because <laughs> I mean like it's a joke, but I think it's also serious in that like I think that if they have Adar and his orcs come in and join the Last Alliance, it will be um, very much like we're so tired of Sauron just ruining everything for us that because again I think it's very true and now. In his goal of, I just want a homeland for the orcs, he does nuke the Southlands. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's, he's not go- a good guy. <laughs> he's willing to kill for what he wants. Yeah. He also does make the human guy murder his friend to prove that he's loyal to Adar. Yeah, for sure. So I was... Yeah. I had this, like, small prediction for season two, or whenever this Sauron-Adar showdown happens. My prediction was that Adar is going to have, like... There's going to be a chance that if the good guys help him he'll beat Sauron, but they're going to be like, no, you're like an orc, and you work with the orcs, and we're not going to help you. 
And it's sort of going to be like, you know, if only they had learned the orcs from more than what they were, then maybe they would have yeah. not. That's my small prediction. Yeah. But yeah. So are you saying this? Yeah, I, I like that idea. Yeah, no, I think that, um, again, I kind of like, as I have looked over it, I do kind of like the character of Adar. Um, because I think, I think that, I don't know if it's a character that Tolkien would have created, but I think that it's a character that Tolkien, if he didn't approve of him, I think he would at least find him a very interesting character. Like, I think, I don't think that Tolkien would be, um, again, I don't know if Tolkien would particularly like this character, but he's not a character that I see Tolkien rolling over in his grave about. Like, I think he, um, especially since it's more towards the end of his life that Tolkien starts having these sort of doubts about, like, okay, it like are the orcs just always evil or are they redeemable i think that tolkien would have seen adar as a decent step in that discussion yeah i think it's yeah i think my criticisms of the show have almost always been of the things that tolkien did write about and that they are not portraying correctly rather than things he didn't write about so that's why i as well like if you're gonna write a new character and make him pretty different then that's like fine like i'm down to try some new things we don't know how Tolkien will react because he's dead yeah. so yeah um whereas you know i we have good guesses of how he might react to other characters in the yeah. show based off of his writings so yeah. Hmm. yeah did you see anything else on there that was interesting uh, that went bronwyn theo and arondir taking in season two what roles will they have oh yeah because i was just thinking with, um, with them that <laughs> You know, because they weren't... We may even talk about this. They weren't shown in episode 8. Yeah, so, yeah, episode and, eight, every, eight. and all the cell phones is destroyed. So they... Like, what's going to happen? I was thinking, like, you know, there could be some, like, uprisings against Sauron that could go on. Because they're going to Pelican, and, which is a, a Numenorean settlement, they, they say. And they might end up founding uh, Gondor. Pelagir uh, ends up being okay. a settlement of Gondor yeah. in the end. Yeah. So. Just show okay. them go completely um, evil and found Umbar. <laughs> But yeah, I think yeah. it's a really interesting question. Because like, we didn't see... We spent I thought there lot. was somebody who, like, after the Southlands was destroyed, we didn't see. Bronwyn goes yeah. north. Yeah, Bronwyn, Bronwyn and Theo Arondir found the Aethed. Oh, they do. But, no, uh, but Arondir, did Arondir show up? No, no well, so he, he stuck, no. stayed with he's, them, he's right? With so them. he's... Yeah. Oh, okay. But, um, they go to, well, again, Pelagir is where Dol Amroth is. So mm-hmm. if they do want to tie this into eventually being like, look, guys, be cool. we did our homework, they could make Theo would have to die. Ooh, ooh. Or they could just have more children. Deep. deep. No, 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 no. Theo would have to die because Bronwyn, or Bronwyn would be the one who's like set up as like the leader character. So her heirs would have become the princes of Dol Amroth, and Theo is her heir. So either Theo dies... Or, this is how we get the Witch King, is that Theo, like, Branwyn and uh, Arendir have a kid who then, like, later down the line is seen as, like, the leader of this group. And Mm. Theo gets felt like he's being passed over. And then this guy comes to him and is like, hey, do you want to be powerful and lead men? Just put on this little ring. Trust me, it'll be fine. You won't, you know, turn into a wraith. Yeah, that's totally a possibility. It's interesting because I think we spent a lot of time with these characters in season one, and so they've got to show up in season two, I feel like. Uh, maybe this is another quick question. 
Do you guys think there's a possibility of a time skip after season between season one and season two? Because it seems like Sauron's about to go make the One Ring, but it's also possible that we could see a few years, maybe even like a few decades pass, and see these characters be older. I think I, if we do a time skip, it'll be later because we've got to set up Numenor and Numenor's fall. Isildur is still in Middle Earth. That's Let's fair. not forget that. That's fair. Yes. My thought was that they might take like a few years to build up their big army before going back to yeah. build, like just wreck them. Yeah, I think that's what's so you know, the be, thousands yeah. of ships are going to come not to a few centuries. Middle, obviously, Middle Earth. Then. Actually, not. I say that because our fire is on and Mariel and other characters need to do some things before too long. So. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I right. don't think they'll be too long because I think next season we very focus on because it's not just that they're building up their army at this point, like. Tharazon has to become king. Muriel has to die. Um, I think next season there will be a lot of uh, Numenorean politics. Maybe we'll finally get to meet um, Anarian. Um, Would be fun. We finally get to see more of the faithful. Like I, I yep. think that there is a lot of Numenorean politics mm. um, to deal with. Which, doesn't that sound fascinating on one hand, but on the other hand, that actually does really sound fascinating. Well, it's like <laughs> all the politics of like any fantasy world, like Numenorean politics are actually got to be pretty high up there. Cool. You know, we got like some human sacrifice in there. We got some treachery. Well, that, we got some that would have to be season freaking... three. No, yeah. Oh, this or... is my thought is that actually we might not see that much. We, we will definitely see some Numenorean politics, but we might not see that much because it's sort of implied that they'll have to travel back to Middle Earth. To fight Sauron before well, yeah. they really go downhill at the end, well, and that okay. I'm guessing that they'll like maybe here's, beat Sauron in season two, yeah. and I'll be the ending of season here's two. Here's the thing: is that um, so our Pharazon becomes king through political intrigue. Kills he forces Muriel. Queen Muriel to marry yeah, him. Well, yeah, the, forces the, her to marry him, and then I think kills her, or has, uh, or I'm she sure dies, that, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. Then, then he goes back to Middle-earth. That's when he beats Sauron. Mm-hmm. So I could see that being the end of Season 2. And then in Season 3, we see Numenor very quickly fall into Morgoth worship. And Sauron, like... This is the thing that is a little bit dubious to me. It's just like, he's your prisoner. And like, yeah, he's a pretty powerful Maya. But like... How do you go from being the one guy who has been taken, like, the specific enemy you sent an entire army to, to capture... To make him your chief advisor. Becomes your chief advisor. Like, love is blind, power is blinder. (laughs) Yeah, anyways. So, yeah. So, Farazhan... So, I think they could play it up as that Farazhan... Yeah, he doesn't. He goes over and plays it off as like, "Oh, we're going to capture him," but he like secretly is just like, "I want your power." Well, I think also I think is that like, this is like something that's even like true to real life. Like, if you're a king and you beat a vassal king, if you like make him your advisor, your servant in your house, that's true. It makes you more that's powerful true. than if he's like a prisoner in your basement. Yeah, and that to be like make a myar your like servant or personal that's advisor, fair. and Sauron really does give them real tips on real things. So he oh, really yeah. is someone who knows a lot of secrets he of the gives, universe. So. He gives just enough real tips that when he suggests, hey, you know what would be a good idea? How about you invade the gods? Um, yeah, and they... That you're like, it. yeah, that does sound like a good idea. I can't see this going wrong at all. And it didn't. It 
dun dun dun. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't You'll have out. to find out. We don't want to spoil anything yeah. here. Yeah. But, uh, Depends on who you're at. Just remember that wave yeah. that was in the Palantir. Yeah. So. Anyways, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Anything. The last question on here that I thought was really interesting is the Gil Galad question. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, what's the question? Um, will Gil Galad's attitude change? I thought it was interesting in episode eight where he, he, um, he like they're like, oh, we'll make it into a crown, and he's like, I don't really want that. And yeah. so it was like this rejection of power when we've sort of seen him be like mm-hmm. shifty, maybe a little power hungry, maybe manipulating the dwarves a little bit throughout the say, show. So last episode, that. I uh, like last podcast episode. I, I think I misspoke. I think I described him as like, because he is the high king of all the elves, and I think I had thought that like he was specifically ruling the kingdom that covered that region of Middle Earth. But from what I have read and seen, and a lot of this I think was Nerd of the Rings and some other stuff that I read, uh, he was really just the king of Linden, and he's the high king of the Noldor. He's the high king of the Noldor. Yeah, so he's not the high king of the king of all the lesser elves. Um, so he does have authority over Celebrimbor and I do kind of read Celebrimbor as like yeah he's the king of this city but he really just cares more about being a blacksmith yeah, yeah, yeah um so like I think I don't I still don't think it's that big of an issue like I still think that like after Beleriand and like all the elves like yeah there's a high king of the Noldor but like half the Noldor just flip him off whenever they get the chance and it's really disunified. I think that I could see the survivors of Beleriand being like, well, we're, we're going to actually going to listen to this guy. Um, so that's just a, that's just kind of a revision from last week mm-hmm. where I, I misspoke. So well, it's because like, we're sort of going towards the last battle where Sauron goes up against Elendil and Gilgalad, who are like two best buddies. And yeah. they end up, you know, they actually, in the books, they like end up, defeating Sauron and uh, Isildur like <laughs> yeah. cuts the ring off after he's already sort of be- Sauron's been beaten yeah um but yeah so like he's like sort of a really great character and sort of a character you want to succeed and win and you'll probably hopefully care about him dying yeah so it's sort of like mm-hmm. maybe are they trending that way in season I hope the so. end of the episode like and like maybe what are they gonna look like in season two yeah yeah um I think I, I definitely think they'll start kind of shifting his character because again with the the crown incident um like him rejecting the crown like i think that was a bit of the character even like you can even argue that um the the whole thing about like sending galadriel and the elves off because like at that time he feels like galadriel's meddling in the affairs is what's gonna cause all this to happen to be fair it kind of does. <laughs> to be fair, both of them actually did. If he hadn't sent her off, she yeah. wouldn't have been on that raft. But yeah. then if she had um, agreed to go. So, yeah. so anyways, so um, I think that he is portrayed still as like a good king. Um, just in a... The only kind of shifty thing he does is like send Elrond to the dwarves to spy unbeknownst to Elrond, which, you know, it seems like if you want to spy, you should probably tell them that they're a spy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they wouldn't Elrond's be as just great too a much of a good boy. Um, anyways, so I, I think they're definitely going to shift his character because, again, I think he, again, intentionally, kind of carries himself similarly to Elendil and that Elendil, like, like Gil-Gilad, he's not necessarily happy with all the decisions he makes. But he still feels like he's making the best decisions. Well, Elrond, he's not necessarily happy with the direction Numenor's going, but he's still proud and 
happy to be a Numenorian, and I think that they will sort of play up those two sort of tragic nobility that these characters have, mm-hmm. um, and use that to kind of connect those characters. Um, because like if Elendil comes with the army and that Arpharazon is leading, I can definitely see like Gilgalad meeting with Arpharazon and immediately just being like, "This guy's bad news," and then connecting with Elendil first there and then later when he comes back because again I think it's it's telling that Elendil founds his kingdom right next to uh Linden. Yeah. Um so they were best buddies. Mhm. Just a couple of bros going out and fighting dark lords. Yeah. Mhm. One thing that was um thought was interesting I guess as the show went on I wasn't sure how they would betray like the the struggle between good and evil, and especially in the last episode, I thought they did a, did a good job of that. Um, and yeah. I guess like there there are certain good themes I guess that I've seen from the first season that wonder are they going to continue doing stuff like that? Um, that I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for season two. Oh, Somebody yeah. said it's like a year away, so I'm yeah. sort of sad I have to wait that long, but definitely uh, looking forward yeah, some, to... Uh, I think there was even... I, I think I saw something that even said, like, 2024. Yeah. I was, oh, I, boy. Like, I heard... Because Amazon's years. wanting to be done next year, in a year from now. And the producers, Joe Runners, are like, uh, we need, like, yeah. more time than that. So, we'll see. We'll see how it Very goes. Interesting. But... Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Yeah. And I do my uh, rant before we close off. Oh yeah, what's your rant? My okay. rant. We'll this up. is this this can be like a postscript. This doesn't even have to be part of the real podcast. But <laughs> so something that has always bothered me, and this is it's bothered me in the books, and it bothers me in like other fantasy universes. I talked to you about this earlier today. Okay. Um, as somebody with a history degree, it bothers me so much that you have these heirloom swords and things that are thousands of years old and are like exactly the same style of sword that you're using today and also these swords have not diminished or like crumbled the dust like the style of armor and weapons we associate with fantasy is only around for like 150 years max in the real timeline like in real history and then you have these stories where it's just like yes we have records going back you know longer than real world written history exists and it's just like you're telling me that uh this dwarf forged narsil before the destruction of beleriand and it has been in the family first of all you've kept track of the same family <laughs> for this entire time and it's been the same sword that has been just as effective and there's been like no metallurgical advances even among the dwarves like how do you have this sword that has lasted this long i i have similar problems with like game of thrones where like we built this castle 3000 years ago and it's like no no, you did not. Castles do not last 3,000 years. <laughs> um, it's like Baron's Ring. You yeah, yeah like, the Ring of Baron no, here is Come on, like, man. You're <laughs> telling me this ring is oh, not The ring is so old. Like, yeah. Because Fingen gives it to him, <laughs> and I think he literally got it from Ballynor. So it's like, literally is like almost like the one of the oldest ring. objects in and, like, like, Middle Earth. I know that like magic is a thing, and it causes like technological differences, but like, like plate mail. 
Plate mail does not happen in the Middle Ages until after gunpowder weapons are introduced into Europe. Like, sorry, this is a rant, and I've, I've it has been bothering me for so long. Well, it's just like, yes. you can't have these things last this long. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and you got a point. I agree, like, it like makes the story so much better. It's not our world. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's not our world. It makes the universe so much better and, like, cooler <laughs> that you can use an ancient sword. But yeah. there is the historian in me that's just I, like, you can't do that. The counter, though, is like, the doctor's like... People aren't immortal in real life. Like, there's these people who are like living forever. Like, what about their DNA? Like, uh, the 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 telomeres at the end of DNA, right? Like, it corrodes over time. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no. Like, <laughs> so, again, I I acknowledge that like it's a magical sword, but like the then I got like, well, then why is it forged in the same style as like a late medieval longsword that they didn't use for more than like. And that's like years. a great point, right? That like yeah. medieval weapons are like a very short time period and like, and like the very e- fast. The evolution of scene. armor and weapons is like this constantly changing thing. Where like like in video games and in movies, you see a guy charge someone. Like he has a sword, and his enemy's in full plate mail, and he like slashes him across the chest. It's just like in real life, that would go ting, and like nothing would happen because plate mail was basically a tank. Um, mm-hmm. So. Anyways, sorry, I'm just ranting about something that doesn't really matter to the whole discussion of this show. You can add this after the outro as a bonus. But anyways, yeah, no, I love Lord of the Rings and I love fantasy, but like Narsil should look like, you know, like an Egyptian Kopesh or something. Like these swords would not last that long. I have so much respect for Tolkien. Or somebody should have invented gunpowder. Or somebody should have, man, I want to, like... The dwarves. Well, I mean, they did have gunpowder. Oh, that's right. I want to see, like, (laughs) I want to see the Lord of the Rings, but just Gimli has a gun. (laughs) Wait, here's here's a theory. What if technology has been initially, like, intentionally kept shorter by the Valar? And they've kept all the the Valar are actually just ordinary people who have like modern technology (laughs) and uh, magic sufficiently advanced technology came over, but really it was just like an atomic bomb that was dropped on Numenor, and that's what happened. (laughs) They wanted to cover it up with tsunami. (laughs) The one counter argument I will give to my own rant is that in a world with magic, you don't necessarily. I think technology would develop differently because, like, yeah, you made a slightly better fighting stick. I can shoot fire at you. Yeah, so yeah, like it's really interesting because um, just a quick if anybody has listened to Brandon Sanderson's or read any of his works, I haven't read it. I really but he has to. the Stormlight Archives. But anyways, in it like they have technology and magic, and they develop along the same like like you said, like they develop differently because yeah. it's a magical world, and therefore people build technology that coexists with magic. But then you'd also have like technology that could challenge magic like again we talked about harry potter earlier harry potter would have been way shorter if voldemort was willing to use a gun yeah like love can't stop bullets (laughs) sorry um anyways uh yeah that's my rant it's just that the historical the the time scales of fantasy universes make no historical sense at all whatsoever but i still love them fair enough anyways well, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and uh, to our epilogue episode of the season one here, and um, we'll release different bits and pieces of, you know, things that we've done in the episode that has been fully released with the podcast, and uh, 
So please stay tuned, and we'll catch you guys next year at the Season 2, hopefully. Yeah, see you then. See you yep. then. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for visiting the White City. Before you leave, please subscribe to our podcast and check us out at thewhitecitypodcast.com. Consider supporting my movement on Facebook, keeping the rings of power pure.